Well, good morning, everyone. I hope your morning has been going well so far. Uh, how has everyone's week been? Good? Good? Not bad? Has it been perfect? No, not quite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sunday mornings, uh, especially, can be a little more difficult, I think. Uh, at least when you still have kids in the house. It's not always the most peaceful time, right? I, I always kind of feel bad on Sunday morning, both, both at home and at church, knowing that, okay, here I am yelling at my kids, and in about half, a half an hour, I'm going to be trying to worship the Lord, and there seems to be a disconnect, right? It's, it's not always peaceful, and, and I think we can describe much of our lives as that. It's not always peaceful. There's a lot of conflict that we deal with in our lives. And this morning I want to talk about peace with God. Peace with God. How, how is it that we can claim to have peace with God when there's so much conflict that is in our lives, when there's so much turmoil and there's animosity, all these various things that we deal with. I, I think most of us in here would say that, yes, indeed, we have trusted in the Lord Jesus. And the text this morning is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and it tells us a wonderful thing about faith in Christ and the result. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So it tells us we have peace with God. But how do we square that with the, I guess, lack of peace that we may have in our own lives. What does peace with God mean? And what does it look like? How is it that despite the conflict, the turmoils, the, the lack of peace that is in our lives, that we can claim that we do indeed have peace with God? And that's what we're going to be discussing this morning. Peace with God. Why we need it. How we don't get it how we do get it, and then what it means. So uh, that, that's going to be our topic this morning. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing on this time. Our Father, we are thankful that we can come together, that we who have trusted in you can say that we do indeed have peace with you, a peace that is brought ultimately through what Jesus has done on the cross. I pray that we would seek to uh, understand that peace, that we would seek to live in that peace and enjoy the benefits of it. And I pray that if there's anyone in here who does not have that peace with God, that they would recognize the conflict that they have, the conflict between them and God. I pray that we would recognize the proper way to peace with God. And I pray that we would enjoy the peace with God that we have through faith in your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, peace is, is a big topic in the world, is it not? Um, you know, we often talk about peace in light of the, the many conflicts that we have. I've recently heard that there are 
talks of a ceasefire now between Israel and Hamas. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't necessarily know what's going on there. But something that we can all say is we would very much like it if there was peace in that region. Uh, there's been war going on in uh, Europe and in Ukraine, and we all, I think, would agree that it, w- it would be a wonderful thing if there was peace. Uh, but it, in this world, inevitably, whenever there is peace, it is not a long-lasting thing. I read somewhere at one point uh, in time, someone compiled uh, all the, the written history of mankind, I guess as long as history had been written, and we can only know so much. But they said, they gave an estimate that throughout all of human history, only about 3% of the time was the world at peace. I don't know if that's perfect, but it, it makes sense, right? We know that there is always conflict in the world. Uh, one author writes this, When we have peace in this world, we can rejoice for a season, but peace is something that never lasts. One of the most infamous photographs from the early days of World War II was that of Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of New England. After he negotiated a peace arrangement with Hitler, his photograph was taken while leaning over the balcony and he uttered the words, we have achieved peace in our time. We're familiar with that. Right then, however, Hitler was mobilizing the Blitzkrieg into Eastern Europe. Interestingly enough, uh, many years before that peace of our time was the war that ends all wars, right? The Great War, World War I, a war that was so vicious, so brutal, everyone looked at that and said, mankind will never again do something this wicked, this barbaric. This is the war that will end all wars, and that, of course, was not the case. Peace in this world is fragile, uh, the, the author continues. It quickly gives way to new hostilities. World War II was followed for many years by the Cold War, the conflict in Korea, and the tremendous war that broke out in Vietnam. It seems our nation is engaged in some kind of war at most times. Hostilities end, but once again people begin to rattle the sword. We never know when the next conflagration will break out. And as we're looking at the world today, there's all kinds of potential for even further war. That does not describe peace. And, And even as these wars come to a close, that is not necessarily a time of peace. Think of uh, the Koreas right now, North and South Korea. And I'll ask the question, are they at peace? Well, no. Uh, there's a ceasefire to some degree, right? They're not uh, completely nuking each other off the face of the earth. But it certainly couldn't be described as peace because war could break out at any moment. Uh, we look at Israel and take our minds back about a month ago before all, all the terrorist attacks. Back then, was Israel at peace? No, it, it might not have been all-out war, but it certainly wasn't peace because we know that can be broken at any point in time and uh, a war can once again resume. So what is it? What is peace? Peace with God. Well, we need to understand that mankind is not at peace ultimately because we are not at peace with God. The conflict in this world ultimately flows from our conflict with 
God. Sin uh, ultimately is, is transgressing the law of God, and as we sin, as we carry out violence in this world, that violence is ultimately against God. All sin is ultimately against God. And we, as mankind, our natural state is not peace with God, but war with God. Mankind, the world, is at enmity with God. Uh, it may not be as as overt as we see in, in many places, but the default state of mankind in our fallen state is at war with God. This is a result of us inheriting our own sinful nature from our father, Adam. Uh, Adam, as we know, uh, transgressed the law of God. He committed cosmic treason against God. God placed him in the garden, uh, gave, him, gave him all this blessing, and he says, this is the one thing you shall not do. And what is it that Adam did? The one thing he was told not to do, thus ending the peace that was in the world. There was no longer peace with God. Instead, he sought to hide himself from God. And we too, like Adam, are not at peace with God. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered, entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread through all men because all have sinned. Speaking of Adam's sin, he says, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. As a result of Adam's sin, we, like Adam, are naturally sinful and rebellious. And the history of the Bible, much of the history, is man's conflict, not just with one another, but with God. Uh, before the flood in Genesis chapter 6, we read what the Lord sees when he looks out in the world, and we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This led to the judgment of the flood, but that did not bring peace, because even after the flood, this is what the Lord has to say, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. We have a sinful nature even from our mother's womb. As David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And as a result of our sinfulness, we are naturally hostile to God. As Paul says in the book of Romans, Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mankind is described as dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Jesus describes us not as sons of God, but sons of our father, the devil. Why? Because we do the very things that the devil does. He was a liar from the beginning. We, in our natural state, are not at peace with God. And this is not good for us because God is a holy, righteous, and just God. God is not an uncaring God sitting in the heavens, not concerned about the things that take place in the world. Uh, many people get that idea. They, in fact, mock the idea that God judges personal sin. Well, all sin is ultimately against God. All sin is ultimately a transgression of his word. 
And we read that God has anger. He has wrath that is stored up for sinners. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. God looking upon the world at those who transgress his law and there is wrath that is stored up. The apostle says, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. When we think about the justice of God, it is God simply giving us what is due. And what is due is ultimately death and eternal punishment. This kind of judgment is described in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 24. I'll read a couple verses. But we read, Behold, Yahweh empties the earth to destruction, eviscerates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants, and the people will be like the priest, the male slave like his master, the female slave like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, and the creditor like the debtor. And what he's saying here is, all are going to be treated the same. Doesn't matter if you're a master, doesn't matter if you're a slave, doesn't matter if you're the borrower, doesn't matter if you're the debtor. You will all be treated alike. You will all receive that perfect justice that is due. Continuing on, the earth will be completely emptied to destruction and completely plundered. For Yahweh has spoken this word. And the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted people of the earth languish. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they trespassed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who inhabit it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men remain. Counted as guilty, facing judgment. We have declared war against God collectively as mankind, and it is a war that we will not win. So, how is it that we then can have peace with God? We, as sinful human beings who have transgressed his covenants, who have broken his laws, to whom wrath is stored up, how is it that we have peace with God? Well, uh, we all recognize that we have this problem right? All, all, all of mankind knows that there's a problem, that there is not peace, uh, that I'm missing something, that uh, there is an enmity between God and man. We know this problem for a number of reasons, right? We all know that God exists. We all know that we have sinned against his will, and we all know that there is a judgment that is to come. For one, God has borne witness of himself in us by writing his law on our hearts, the Apostle Paul says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. We all know right from wrong. We don't do right from wrong, but we know it, right, even from a very young age. Uh, our children know when they are doing something wrong. Uh, our children have a conscience. We too have a conscience that bears witness to us when we are transgressing the law. Therefore, we have no excuse. 
God has sufficiently revealed himself to all people so that all stand as guilty before him. The, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We know that we do not have peace. We know that there is a judgment to come. Why is it that we are naturally afraid of death? Right? It's not because it's a a mystery or anything like that, but because we know that there is a just God who will treat us according to our deeds. It is a learned thing. It is something that people have to learn to not be afraid of death. It is a truth that they have to suppress, Uh, but we all know the reality behind it. So how is it that we have peace with God, knowing this reality, knowing that there's a problem, knowing that there's a conflict? Well, One idea that many people have is that, well, as long as I live a good life, then I will be accepted before God, right? This is a a common idea that many people have, uh, and we all know people who think this way, that, well, as long as I do more good in my life than I do bad, then God will allow me into heaven, right? Uh, we, we kind of view our lives as a, this set of scales where uh, on the one side of the scales, you've got all the bad things that you do, but then on the other side, you've got all the good things you do, right? Like, uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I stole... Uh, I stole some cash out of my neighbor's wallet. And that goes on the bad side. Oh, but I did help a little old lady across the street. So that, that'll kind of counterbalance it a little bit. And as long as I do enough good things in this life, enough good to at least cover the bad, make sure I don't do too many bad things, then, uh, then I should be good to go. That's, that, that's an idea a lot of people have. Well, there's one uh, a flaw in that logic concerning our good works, having enough, having enough good works to outweigh the bad. And that problem with our good works is that we don't have any good works, right? Now, I'm I'm not saying that we can't do nice things or, or things like that. However, when it comes to our standing before God, our good works have no sway in his sight. We read of God looking upon the earth Uh, Psalm 52 says, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understands any of them who seek God. So God's saying, all right, I'm an impartial, God, the impartial judge is going to say, all right, I'm going to look at mankind. I'm going to judge them according to their deeds. Is there any who does good? Is there any who seek after God? And what is the conclusion? Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. A psalmist likewise states, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God is the impartial judge. If he were to look at our own lives, what would he see? Well, he would see us as what we are, as guilty sinners. Because even in God's sight, Our good deeds, done imperfectly, done with imperfect motives, uh, even our good deeds 
are considered as worthless. Isaiah 64, verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So if it's a matter of simply being good enough to get into heaven, good enough to have peace with God, none of us make it. Okay, well, uh, I, I can't be good enough to get to heaven, so I can't, be, I can't be good enough to have peace with God, so maybe I can have peace with God through religion, right? Through joining a church, through religious ceremony, through whatever else it might be. Uh, people have, we can get the idea that, well, as, as long as I become a Christian uh, by, by going to church, by getting baptized or whatever else it might be, then, then, then I'll have peace with God, right? Make sure I say the right prayer, make sure I do the right thing, following in these religious ceremonies. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things, right? God tells us things that we are to do. It's a good and proper thing. However, these things are not what bring us peace with God. I do not have peace with God because I was put under water and brought back out. I do not have peace with God because I take from the bread and drink from the cup on Sunday morning. I don't have peace with God because I prayed the sinner's prayer or anything like that. These are not the things that bring me peace with God. It is not through religious acts of obedience that bring us peace. God shows us that our attempts at strictly following his commands, uh, following in the ceremonial aspects of the Christian life or whatever else it is, they do not have any power to save in and of themselves. In fact, God even condemns his Jewish people as they're carrying out their ceremonial law in one hand while on the other hand they practice iniquity. God in Isaiah says, Where are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear me, who requires this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your moon festivals and your appointed feasts, and they have become a burden to me, and I am weary of, of bearing them. Now, these are things that God had commanded the people to do. But the problem is the people are viewing these things as, oh, well, this is how I have a right relationship with God. As long as I make sure I offer the right sacrifices at the right time, as long as I show up to the right place at the right time, do the right ceremonies, that is what does it. That is how I have peace with God. And God is saying, no, that's worthless. If you, uh, uh, to do these things, if you're doing these things on the one hand, thinking somehow you're going to, to purchase or acquire your salvation, while on the other hand, living completely godless lives. And simply knowing the regulations of God does not bring peace with God. In fact, the law that God gives us only shows us our shortcomings, right? Uh, another thing, another idea that we might have is, well, we have peace with God by obeying the commandments. And I think we've already shown that uh, none of us do good, right? Uh, the, only right the only way to stand as righteous before God by law is to fulfill those commandments perfectly. All right, you want to stand as righteous before God? You want to have peace with God? Well, God's shown you how to do it. He gave us the Ten Commandments, did he not? Uh, those are expanded into various things, but the Ten Commandments are a good summary of them. And we can even summarize those Ten Commandments with, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As long as you do these things, then you will have peace with God. The problem is God did not give us the law so that we could then take the law and say, okay, as long as I do these, then I'm right with God. The purpose that God gave us the law really is to show us just how short we have fallen from it. Right? We can't take the law and say, okay, here's my instruction book for eternal life. That's how many people try to view it. In, uh, in fact, that's how even the Jewish people in the days of Jesus viewed the law. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Jews, he said, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge of the truth. Therefore, you, uh, you therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. The purpose of the law, yes, in our Christian life, the law of God is a good thing. It does give us instructions. It does tell us how we are to live. But when it comes to saving power, the law cannot do it. In fact, the law's purpose is to shut us up underneath it. The law's purpose is to bring a curse upon us. Just as the Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, For as many as are the words of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So what's he saying? What he's saying really is failure to uphold one point of the law is a failure to uphold all of it. And a failure to uphold all of it brings the curse of God down upon us. So this is not how we have peace with God. In fact, we cannot have peace with God in this way. And when we think about the commandments, now let's, we should have some idea of what's involved in the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. These are just commandments pertaining to uh, how we are to treat one another. And we may hear these things and think, oh, great, uh, I've never killed anyone, so I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I remember as a, a, a younger person, uh, knowing the commandments and, and knowing the righteousness of God, okay, I know God judges sin, uh, I know that I need to be righteous before him. So, all right, I'll just take the Ten Commandments. And, you know, the Ten Commandments uh, can be pretty easy if we take them at just a bare surface level, right? Uh, you shall not murder. Okay, yeah, I've never killed anyone. I must be good to go, right? Well, Jesus shows us that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, goes beyond just what we do on the outside, but it actually addresses us on the inside, who we are on the inside. Jesus teaches us, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery 
So if we can stand as guilty enough to go to hell for hatred for our brother, how, what hope do we have in following the Ten Commandments? Because the further down we go, the worse off it gets, right? Uh, you shall not commit adultery. That's what the command says. Jesus says, everyone, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Now we can go to other things. You shall not steal. How many of us can say we've never stolen anything in our lives? So the commandments, uh, well, if that is a way to heaven, then that is a way that we have fallen so far short of that it's not even funny. They cannot bring us peace with God because the purpose of the law is to show us our sin. As Romans chapter 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. So how is it that we can have peace with God? Well, peace with God ultimately is not something that we go out and achieve through our obedience, through the commandments, through religious ceremony or whatever else it is. But peace with God is something that ultimately God must bring. Remember, our disposition as sinners, we naturally are at war with God. And in fact, we have no desire in and of ourselves for peace, right? Uh, at least peace with God. We want peace and things going on around us, but naturally our desire is to not have peace with God. As Romans, uh, as the Apostle Paul had already told us in the book of Romans, that um, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Those in the flesh cannot please God. So peace with God cannot be something that we bring, but it is something that God brings. It's something that God accomplishes. So how is it that we can have peace with God? Well, not through law, but ultimately through faith, which brings us back to our main passage, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us how apart from the law we can achieve this. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God because of what God ultimately does in justifying us. And we need to understand what this word justify means. When we are justified or declared righteous, 
it is not that we somehow make ourselves righteous and, and uh, bring ourselves to a, an objectively good standing before God, right? It, it's not as if all of my sins have finally uh, been t- forsaken, shed away, and I'm now standing as holy and righteous before God. To be justified in God's sight is a declaration of righteousness, meaning that me as a guilty sinner am standing before God, guilty, right? And yet, God as the supreme judge of all the earth can point to me and say, justified. Meaning that the sin that I committed is not counted to my account. That's what it, that is how we ultimately have peace with God, through God granting forgiveness. And God justifying us. This justification that God gives is a gift by grace through faith. And we have to understand what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor, God giving us something that we do not deserve. Right? We do not receive justification in exchange for something that we do. It is something that is received through faith in Christ. As he says, Uh, uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. And this has always been the means that mankind has peace with God, right? Faith, justification by faith. Romans chapter 4 tells us this. Now, we, we can sometimes get the false idea, especially as we're looking at the, the Jewish sacrificial system and things like that, that, well, the old way of peace with God was uh, through sacrifices and, and all these various things. The new way with peace with God is through faith. Well, that's not the case, and we see that even through Abraham. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how is it that Abraham can be called a friend of God? How is it that Abraham, a sinner, and think of who Abraham was, called from uh, the land as an idolater, And we look at Abraham's life, and uh, certainly there's uh, pictures of righteousness and examples we should follow, but it's certainly not a perfect life, is it? So how is it that a sinner like Abraham can have peace with God? How is it that he can be called a friend of God? Well, because he believes the promises that God has given him. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the same way, how is it that we can have peace with God? Well, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing what God had said, that forgiveness is found through faith in Christ. We do not receive grace as a result of obedience, right? Uh, Grace is not given in exchange for something. And in fact, grace not freely given cannot be called grace, right? Uh, when, when I get paid every month, Ned is not saying, here is a gracious gift from the chapel. Because what would that mean? That would mean that you didn't earn this. You didn't do anything for this. It is only out of our goodwill that we're giving this to you and no other reason at all, right? 
Because if that's the case, that's telling me, I, oh, do I need to start looking for a new job, <laughs> right? It's, it's not grace, but it's what is due, right? It's what is owed. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. So uh, uh, God in giving us grace is not giving us what we deserve, right? Uh, if we were to take what we deserve, what would we get? Well, we would receive death and judgment. Uh, But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Right? We do not receive grace because somehow we've done the right thing in exchange. But grace is given through faith. Uh, grace is bestowed upon the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And and, and think about that, right? This is describing who we are, the ungodly. We looked at the picture of mankind at war with God, and, and that's one word that could summarize it all, ungodly. But how is it that we have peace with God? Is it by us somehow no longer being ungodly? No, it is through Faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. Recognizing that, yes, while God is indeed a just God, he is a loving God too. Scripture, while we do see a a great amount of God's justice, Scripture is ultimately a story of God's redemption. God redeeming a sinful people. God showing his grace and his love to people who do not deserve it. And we ultimately have that through Christ and what he has done. Grace is not given in exchange for something that we do. As Paul will later say, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God's grace is given through the declaration of righteousness that is received through faith. And it is this that ultimately brings us our peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a peace that is not like the peace that we see in the world. As we've discussed, the peace that we see in this world is a a temporary thing. It's it's fleeting. In many ways, it can't even be described as peace. It's uh, kind of a ceasefire, just merely anticipating the next shot to be fired and for the war to erupt again. That's not what peace with God is like. When we have peace with God through faith, then the war that we once had is done. It is over. There is true peace. God's peace is not merely a ceasefire for a time, but a true peace. The word that Paul likely had in mind was shalom. And we've all heard the word shalom, right? You run into a Jewish guy in the street, he goes, oh, shalom to you, right? Uh, But this word shalom uh, carries not just the idea of a cessation of hostilities, but a wellness of relationship, right? We're no longer we counted as the enemy of God, but as the friend of God. No longer are we counted as children of the enemy, but sons of God. And God speaks of this great peace that he will bring upon his people. 
In Isaiah chapter 54, he says, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So we have peace with God. We know that the judgment due to us will no longer, uh, it has nothing to do with us anymore, right? Uh, The enmity between us has been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. And this is not something that is temporary, but this is something that is eternal. The peace with God we have is a peace that we have forever. There's no chance of the war breaking out again. There's no chance of facing judgment that is due to sin the, uh, because the enmity between God and man has been forgiven. We continue reading uh, of the, this peace that we can see exemplified in the life of David. Now let's look at David. Uh, he was certainly not a man who lived a peaceful life, and yet he could rest in the peace that he had with God. Not just peace that he had with God in the good times, right? but peace that he had with God, even as he is found in trespass and sin. We know of the grave sin of David. Uh, took another man's wife, Uriah, uh, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, impregnated her, and to cover it up, he had Uriah murdered. And yet, it did not take away the true objective peace that he had with God. Now, it certainly was not a peaceful time with him, but our peace with God is not dependent on how we feel about it, right? Because we might look at our relationship with God and think, oh, things sure seem uh, rocky here. I'm not praying the way I should be praying. I'm not reading the Bible as I should be reading the Bible. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. Uh, it, it, it seems like things are not very peaceful, The peace we're talking about is not merely a a, a peace of mind, but it's the true objective peace that comes from our sins being forgiven. And we see this in David, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We can have peace with God because the sin that caused the enmity between us and God is not taken into account, right? So not just the sins of yesterday, but the sins of today and the sins of tomorrow, not taken into account, completely forgiven, a peace that will never be broken. We who have trusted in Christ may not always feel at peace, but it doesn't change the objective reality that we have peace. We have this peace because our sins have truly been forgiven, and they've been forgiven through what Jesus has done on the cross. So next week, or not next week, but the next time I'm up, we're going to continue this theme of peace with God by starting with that very point. How is it? What is uh, the grounds for peace with God? How is it that God can look at me as sinner and declare me as righteous? How is it that God can take my sin and forgive it? Well, ultimately, because of what Christ has done. We'll talk about the blessings that result from peace with God. Blessings that we experience in this life and blessings that we'll continue to experience throughout eternity. And we'll uh, also talk about how we live 
in peace with God. So how do we live in light of this peace that God has given us? So these are the three things we'll look at uh, next time we're up. So in conclusion, just to summarize everything, what is our natural state? Our natural state before Christ, B.C., we are counted as enemies of God. If we're not in Christ, then we are at war with God. We may not necessarily feel that way, but that's how God feels about you. The wrath of God towards sin is piling up against you, and it will be carried out. The wages of sin is death. Ten out of ten people die, right? If we are his enemies, we're faced with his wrath. We can't look for false forms of peace. We don't have peace with God simply because we come to church on Sunday. We don't have peace with God simply because we were baptized or because we prayed the sinner's prayer. We don't have peace with God because we think we're doing the right thing or whatever else it is. These are not things that can bring us peace with God. But we ultimately find peace with God through faith in Christ and ultimately what he has done. Our peace is not dependent on us. It is dependent on what someone else has already done Christ going to the cross on our behalf and through faith in him, trusting that it is indeed that sacrifice that brings my peace with God, that God justifies the ungodly because of what Christ has done. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that We can gather together as imperfect as we are, as sinful as we may be, still carrying about that old flesh, and yet we can read this passage and recognize the reality that we have peace with you. This peace is not our accomplishment, but yours. You are the one who has brought us peace, and that peace is ultimately brought through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we can stand in this peace, knowing that it is not something that can be broken, knowing that war will not break out between us ever again, knowing that we are forever counted as your children, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And I pray that if there's anyone in here who has not yet experienced this peace, who cannot claim this peace for themselves, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts, do a work in their minds, show them the futility of their ways, show them the judgment that is to come and drive them to your son. You made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. We pray, uh, we give you thanks for that peace now. We say these things in Jesus' name, amen.